Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DeMarco KC of Blackstone Chambers. In this episode five of the Sports Law Podcast, we shall focus on one of the most important, often most misunderstood and frequently most controversial aspects of professional football, financial fair play or FFP as it has become known. I'm joined by four leading experts in the field and we'll try and explain the history of FFP why it was brought in, what it is, how it has worked or perhaps not worked. I'll ask about some of the topical cases and issues and we shall look at the future of FFP and football. And of course, I'll ask my guests about their own personal journeys to the fascinating roles in sport, finance or law that they now hold. So we're very fortunate today to be joined firstly by Rebecca Capelhorn, the Director of Football Administration and Governance at Tottenham Hotspur FC. Rebecca's responsible for football governance and contractual matters at Spurs, so FFP is one of the things she has to deal with on a regular basis. Before joining Spurs in 2015, Rebecca was the Director of Finance at QPR and worked, along in fact with me, on the well-known QPR FFP case against the Football League. She's one of the most senior women directors in football, she's a chartered accountant, and she's held previous senior finance roles in tennis as well as football. Kieran Maguire is one of the leading football finance specialists and he lectures at the University of Liverpool Management School. He's best known as the author of the excellent book, The Price of Football, and as the co-presenter, along with comedian Kevin Day, of the highly successful podcast of the same name. Despite being focused on football finance, which some might regard as a little dry, It's one of the most popular and interesting football podcasts out there. And quite incredibly, Kieran and his team managed to produce two episodes of it every week. Kieran's also a regular poster on social media on all things football finance and a friend. He's the one who amusingly first called me the Lionel Messi of sports law on Twitter. Tom Murray is a managing associate in the sports and esports group at the leading London law firm, Mishcon Derea. And he co-authored along with me and two other members of Mishcon's chapter 17 of the second edition of our football and the law book, Financial Regulation and Financial Fair Play. So in addition to providing specialist advice to many sports clients, Tom is an expert in the legal side of FFP. He also heads the Mishcon Sports Law Academy, an academic program giving students an opportunity to gain a practical insight into sports law. And he produces an online vlog entitled Laws of the Game, providing bite-sized analysis of contemporary sports law issues. Tom is also the founder of Nevo, a global esports and interactive entertainment management business that represents professional gamers and a non-executive director of British Fencing. And last but not least, Dan Jones is a football finance and governance specialist. He is the former global head partner for sports at Deloitte, where he was responsible for editing two of the most useful and important publications that consider football finance. Deloitte's annual review of football finance and the Deloitte Football Money League. Dan has also appeared as an expert witness in various FFP cases, on some occasions for the EFL, on the other side from my clients such as QPR and Derby County. And he was recently one of the panel members responsible for the very important independent fan-led review of football governance, chaired by Tracy Crouch MP, which of course has recommended an independent statutory football regulator 
responsible for financial issues. So with such an excellent panel of experts, let's start with the history of FFP. When and why did this type of regulation first come into football? I'm going to start with you, Dan, because I think it's fair to say that you were an early proponent of FFP. Thanks, Nick. Um, I probably prefer to think of myself as an early convert rather than an early proponent. So uh, I come from a, a school of having you know, been an economist and an accountant and corporate financier. So you know, my natural instincts are not to um, sort of rein in and intervene too much in the market. But I think if you spend any time at all looking at the finances of football, you, you realise that there's a need at times to, to save the game from itself. So football over the time I've worked in it over the last sort of 25, 30 years has had no problem whatsoever in terms of generating revenue. Fantastic at that. Bit of an issue in terms of distributing that revenue, which we can maybe talk about later and evokes a lot of debate, but a massive interest issue in terms of controlling costs. And so there was a, a need for a mechanism to, to control those costs and to you know, lead to sustainable ways of working. Um, UEFA introduced FFP as a build onto uh, their club licensing system and other aspects of the game have you know, followed through with their own measures, profitability, sustainability rules, salary cap management protocols, etc. Um, but the, the key thing I think about FFP to remember is, is what it was there to do. And what it was there to do was not to bring about a level playing field in European football, it was there to bring about financial sustainability in European football. And, you know, it runs to a lot of complex detail, but at the end of the day, what it was really designed to do was make sure people paid their bills in full and on time and balanced their books. Um, and in that measure, it has been, I think, pretty successful. And, you know, there's obviously variations on those regulations all the way across Europe and across different levels of football of people trying to, uh, you know, mimic and mirror them. But the, the key thing is to have great strategic clarity about what you're trying to achieve and have a set of rules that then go about achieving that. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about whether all the current rules do just that. Mm. Kieran, in, in your book, um, the, the Price of Football, uh, on the chapter dealing with FFP, you, you're a, you express a slightly more cynical view uh, and suggest that at least there's an argument there that uh, one of the reasons for FFP was some of the big European clubs were concerned about competition from the likes of Man City and PSG. Can you expand on that? I think if you look at things on a broader sphere, old money doesn't like new money. And that's what we saw with the with the disruptors. And, and that's what Abramovich and Mansour brought to football, certainly domestically, and then I think on a European uh, measure as well. Six doesn't go into four. And we did have a fairly cosy relationship into which clubs were going to be qualifying for the Champions League. If we take a look at the, the pre-Abramovich era, we effectively had a duopoly in terms of who was going to win the Premier League each season. That's great if you're a Manchester United or an Arsenal fan. I'm old enough to remember Derby County, Nottingham Forest, Blackburn Rovers, Everton, Aston Villa. I think that's probably showing my age as much as anything else. But those clubs were completely out of it in terms of being competitive. If we take a look at the, the wages position pre-Abramovich, Manchester United's wage bill was 75% higher than that of Chelsea. Arsenal's was 31% higher. Football's a talent game. Talent follows the money. So therefore, you were locking in, uh, in, in that, in that pre-era, the ability of clubs to compete. What financial fair players done... Uh, and you know, I agree entirely with what Dan has said. It was there never never wasn't the intention to to, to increase competitive football. Um, what football has has done 
uh, through FFP, as it is, it is created this, this closed environment, it's to prevent another Chelsea, another Manchester City, because if six into four doesn't go very well, seven into four doesn't go very well either. Fascinating. Um, I, I want to turn next to Tom to give a short summary of what the FFP rules are, the, the ones we're dealing with now at least. Because a common misconception, Tom, and uh, Dan and Kieran have just covered it, is that FFP is about fair competition, stopping bigger clubs spending more than smaller clubs. But of course, that's not how it works, is it? No, I think that's, that's right, Nick. And I, I think the term financial fair play is, is, is somewhat of a misnomer. It's perhaps why UEFA has now decided to move away from this, from this language. I think by using the term fair, we, we imply that the underlying purpose is to put clubs on, a fair, on, a, on an equal playing field. But that, as, as, as Dan and Kieran have said, that's just not the case at all. Um, I think FFP, by its very nature, allows clubs that earn more money to spend more money. And just to give a very sort of basic example, if you're Manchester United and you've got you know, millions worth of commercial income, you're always going to be able to spend more money than, than a Crystal Palace or perhaps a, perhaps a Brighton. Um, I think the goal, of, the goal of FFP isn't to put clubs on the same footing, it's to encourage them to spend and operate within their means. And when a club has more means, it can obviously spend more. Now, some, like Kieran said, would argue that this sort of entrenches a system of inequality as those who are able to sort of spend their way at, at the top to, to become successful are now sort of locked into place by the current system of rules and are able to enjoy the current benefits of it. But obviously, as a Chelsea fan, I'm, I don't see a problem with this. Um, Rebecca, turning this to you, if I can, um, you've obviously had to deal with various different incarnations of these rules at two very different clubs at, at QPR, which one might describe as a smaller club compared to some of the Premier League clubs, um, when it had the benefit of wealthy investors coming in and trying to spend more uh, for success. And then at Spurs, one of the so-called top six clubs Kieran described, um, ranked number 10 in Deloitte's current table of the richest clubs in the world. But what are the different challenges FFP presents to different clubs at different levels? Yeah, and I think that everyone's touched on it already. I think depending on your situation, FFP impacts you in very different ways. And I think for me, in, in my experience, one of the biggest challenges is just dealing with moving goalposts. And I think you, you spoke about QPR there, and obviously yeah, we got promoted, uh, relegated, promoted, uh, relegated uh, at, at QPR, and, and trying to move from one regime to another was difficult. Um, the um, governing bodies changing their regimes with not much notice is difficult. Um, Players' contracts are typically three, four, five years. You don't always get that length of time in terms of a run into to changes in regulations. That's difficult. Um, and at Spurs, you know, similarly, and, and obviously Kieran sort of talked a little bit about European qualification there. You know, there's a big financial difference between qualifying for Champions League and not. And so having that um, confidence on where your income is going to be versus where your costs are going to be is, is not easy. And so you get quite good um, oversight on what your costs are going to be, and player contracts being the bulk of that, and you know, you know what your commitments are over three, four, five years. However, you can't guarantee some of your income streams on that same period, and that's very difficult to manage. Mm. What, what, are the, the, what is the value of qualifying for the Champions League these days? So it depends on a number of factors. Um, one, how far you go. Two, which country you're from. Um, and three, how, other, how many other teams do well in your country. But it's a quantum of 40 plus million pounds. And, you know, that's significant in anybody's club. Well, thank you. That's been a great introduction to FFP. But I want to drill down now to some more specific questions. Um, let's start with this one, uh, Dan. Has it worked? Because I know when we've been on other sides of the dispute, 
uh, and you've been called as an expert witness, you and your clients have quite rightly emphasised the problem that, for instance, a football league used to have with many administrations before FFP. But of course, we've seen quite a few after FFP as well, haven't we? We've seen Wigan, Berry that went out of business, uh, the problems at Macclesfield, the f inability of clubs like Oldham to pay wages on time, and then a, a, a historic club like Derby County going to administration. Now, against that backdrop, can you still say FFP rules in the championship, for example, have actually worked? Yeah, so I mean, let's let's focus probably at that at that level of the of the championship and, and the EFL because there's been a lot of discussion about UEFA and Manchester City and PSG and so on. And, and for the Premier League, frankly, this is less of an issue and a topic because the reasons already discussed. If you can comply with UEFA FFP as a Premier League club, you'll you'll be absolutely fine in terms of your sustainability at Premier League level. So, of course, going to what Rebecca said, the the issue quite often comes up with when you get relegated and you move from being a Premier League club to a Championship club. Uh, and actually, there's quite a big challenge as well if you get promoted into the championship. If you come from being a, a League One club, um, you're probably quite capable of running a reasonably sort of break-even type operation. The salary cost controls in League One and League Two work reasonably well. Um, it's the championship that's the real headache because, you know, it's, it's ultra-competitive. There's at least half that division at any given time who feel they have a, you know, a very good shot at one of those three places to go up. And therefore, everyone's chasing the dream. And, and in my view, there's probably two or three hundred million pounds a year being spent in excess of what needs to be spent to get very much the same squad of players as would exist if that division had some form of cost control and salary cap that was effective. And I think the championship's financial fair play rules were starting to bite, were starting to have an effect. And then they were sort of required to align themselves to the Premier League's profitability and sustainability rules and unfortunately um, the rules that the Championship then had to adopt neither ensured profitability nor sustainability. I mean it was an incredible misnomer, much more so than, than FFP was. Um, I have huge sympathy by the way for Derby County um, and for their former owner Mel Morris. I think you know, if, you, if you look at what he did as an owner, you know, he chased the dream, he invested a huge amount of his own money, he was on the brink of being a local hero and now he finds himself in a position where, you know, he has lost sort of nine figure sums of money and, you know, has probably prior status, if you mention him to most people in Derby. And, and again, when I talk about the game time, I having to save itself from itself. It's that sort of situation. The clubs you mentioned that are very literally close to home for me in the Northwest and the problems they've had, to me, those problems are much more down to the calibre of owners and directors and the integrity of them. And therefore, that's why, as a key part of any regulation, you need a very, very strong owners and directors test and you need very strong ongoing monitoring of finances and so on. So clear regulations with real teeth. Um, so yes, I'd say we're in a much better state than we would have been without the rules. Um, but there's an awfully large distance still to travel to get everything right. And just on figures, Rebecca said, you know, around about 40 million for qualification. Can you remind us now, what's it worth for a championship club chasing the dream to get promoted to the Premier League? So, I mean, it depends a little bit on how long you stay up when you get into the Premier League. But, you know, you're certainly looking at, you know, well into nine figures and you know, a couple of hundred million pounds is a, is a fairly, uh, in inverted commas, easy number to get to. The, the problem is that the cost of getting there is being part of a division where, you know, people are losing you know, around 20 million pounds a season to be competitive on the pitch. Um, and, you know, there's a limit to how many years you can do that for for, mo for most clubs and most people.
Tom, what's your views about FFP and whether it's worked or not? Well, I think just building on some of the things that, that Dan's just said, one of the other issues that, that we've seen is not just when clubs are, are, are relegated from the Premier League to the Championship, but also when clubs are promoted from the Championship to the Premier League and then perform surprisingly well. So I think Wolves in, in 2019 was their first season having just been promoted. They qualified for the Europa League from, from memory. Um, they fell comfortably within the, the Premier League's loss threshold, which, uh, which is currently 105 million over, over the three-year monitoring period, but breached the UEFA restrictions, which at the time were, were 30 million worth of um, acceptable deviation. And they were then they then had to they were then charged by UEFA and had to have to conclude a settlement agreement. So it just goes to show it's not always on, on the way down that it causes issues, but also when clubs are sort of um, surprisingly successful as I think Wolves were. But I think overall this question depends on, on who you ask. I think UEFA look at this as a, as a, as a really successful model. And as soon as you go on their website, before you can even find UEFA rules, you have to read through this, this text which talks through how successful an FFP has been. So they describe it as having an extraordinary improvement on the finances of European football clubs. And then it's been on there for years, but they, they, they wheel out a figure that says in 2009, I think net losses were 1.6 billion. Um, but by 2018, that figure had transformed into 140 million worth of, worth of profit. But they, they choose the dates very carefully here. So 2009 being in the midst of a financial crisis, 2018 being the year just before COVID was COVID um, sort of came to play. So whether or not this is a you know this is a causal link and that actually the UEFA rules have had this effect, or whether it's just a correlation sort of remains remains up for debate. I think most people would say that the, the successes of, of Europe's top football clubs financially is probably more to do with quite significant broadcast deals which have been concluded rather than as a result of, of FFP. Um, I think, you, Nick, you touched on, on, on four high-profile administrations that we've seen for the past three years, um, Bolton Wanderers, Wigan Athletic and Derby, and also Barry's expulsion from the EFL in 2019. So I think from looking at it from the EFL's perspective, I think... I think FFP or PNS, as it's called, is far less successful. And I think these examples sort of highlight the flaws of the of the EFL rules. And that, you know, if they're justified on the basis that they prevent the net buildup of debt and therefore make it less likely that clubs will go insolvent, arguably the past four years, despite them being very difficult financial times, they failed, they failed in that justification. Um, one of the key objectives of of FFP is to, is to encourage discipline and rationality in spending in clubs' finances. And I think when you look at this, it's always interesting to focus on the club's wages as a percentage of overall turnover. So from the Tracy Crouch review, in 2019-20, which was obviously a difficult year for clubs, only one club in the EFL Championship fell below UEFA's recommended maximum ratio of 70%, and that, that was a club that was in receipt of, of parachute payments, and seven EFL Championship clubs had wages at 150% of overall turnover. So I think by looking at those statistics, those controls haven't been effective. And if you look at, if you look at our, our two most high profile systems of FFP being UEFA and the Premier League model, you know, the obje this particular objective is undermined by the rules themselves. So one of the objectives is that we, we want to encourage clubs to operate on the basis of their own revenues. Well, both systems allow clubs to lose, in UEFA's case, 70 million euros over a three-year monitoring period. In the Premier League, you can, you can lose 105 million. And those, those losses have to be covered by contributions from equity participants. 
So those participants are third parties putting money into a club. By its very nature, you're not encouraging clubs to operate on their own revenues. Um, so yeah, I think overall, depending on who we would ask, um, I think it hasn't been a particular success. I think finally, the, the fan-led review of football sort of demonstrated that particularly the EFL system is, is, is not up to scratch, and which is why they're proposing this, this independent regulator to come into place. Yes, and we'll come on to that in a moment. Re Rebecca, I want to ask you whether you think it's been a success or failure as well. But I also want to ask you a particular question, which it often occurs to me that one of the problems with these rules is that they're made by the clubs in the leagues themselves. And that can lead to things like um, some clubs trying to stop a rival from spending more than they do to, su to succeed. And so bringing, bringing the spending amounts down um, sort of internecine warfare there's been in the championship between clubs about how the rules should play out. And we're beginning to see a bit of that in the Premier League as well. It is one of the problems with these rules that they're made by the clubs themselves in the leagues as opposed to by an independent regulator. I think that's really interesting, Nick, because every football club has self-interest at heart and, and we're all trying to run our own individual businesses. And so with some issues, and, and FFP is one of them, it's quite difficult to take a step back and look at it from, from a wider perspective. And so, of course, we all have our own views on it. Kieran touched on it earlier in terms of, you know, clubs sort of trying to bake in the hierarchy or, or stop other people baking in the hierarchy. And certainly when I was at QPR, um, when there was lots of debate at championship level about what the rules should be, Undoubtedly, there were clubs in the room that were only acting from self-interest to try and stop other clubs that could afford. And I understand that there's a, whether you can afford it or not is, is a little bit subjective, but clubs that could afford to spend more money than them from doing that and, and basically trying to prevent clubs sort of going for glory. I think it is different in the Premier League, but, it, but equally, you know, there are some clubs that are able to spend more than others, and that's just life. Um, but I think to not have football club input into the rules is very difficult because ultimately we are the people that run clubs day to day. We're the people with the best understanding of the reality of that. And so do I think that clubs shouldn't be involved in the process at all? No. But do I recognise that there is self-interest at play when, when clubs are effectively setting the rules? Yeah, absolutely. Kieran, um, you regularly post about all things FFP. I think I saw one of yours this morning. Um, in your own personal opinion, success or failure? Uh, and if it's a, a failure, should it be scrapped or improved? Putting on my academic hat, if I, if I was grading it, I'd probably give it a, a solid 2-2. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think we have to go back to the objectives of financial fair play. Uh, and I think it's actually very difficult to, to actually conclude whether it has been successful or not. Because initially, uh, UEFA were saying the objective is to reduce debt. Now, putting back my historical hat, as an insolvency accountant, debt's not a problem. Cash flow is all about the success or otherwise of a business in its ability. Uh, you know, Rebecca is at Spurs. Spurs have got the highest debt of any club in Europe. I've said on many occasions, because I have to do radio and TV on, on a fairly non-stop basis these days, it's not an issue. Servicing debt, the debt in terms of the capital repayment of the debt, that's not rescheduled until, or is rescheduled until 2039. The interest rates are relatively low. If you compare the marginal revenue to the marginal cost, it's a fantastic deal. So debt is not a problem. So therefore UEFA went and changed the rules because they realised that if they were to try to prevent another Manchester City, another Chelsea from arising, and those clubs were being funded by equity, as we've seen in effectively in both cases, 
it wasn't going to, to achieve the objectives. So we moved to a, a profit-based approach. Dan's touched on this in, in respect to what we see in the championship. If we go back to 2018-19, the last season pre-COVID, collectively the 24 clubs in the championship lost £594 million on an operating basis. That averages £494,000 a week. I, I feel sorry for any club owner, and, and I, I'm quite critical of club owners at mm -hmm. times, having to write out a cheque every Monday for half a million pounds and, and smile through gritted teeth <laughs> as that centre-forward blasts it over from six yards, <laughs> yes. and you're thinking, that's my playoff chance gone. You can understand the problems there. Um, I, I do think that there are weaknesses because we have a profit-based approach. Um, I, I, I'd much rather have real-time monitoring of cash flows. Um, my, my concern, because we have a... Uh, a, a limits-based approach that limits become targets and as, as I explained to one of my children who I regularly have to bail out when you reach the maximum point as far as your credit card limit is concerned you don't get a prize for that that is not an achievement <laughs> so so therefore it, it, again you know, when, when you talk to other stakeholder groups especially fans so I, I, I have a lot of engagement with with fans through uh, I do quite a few podcasts and so on they say, well, we can lose up to £105 million. Why are we not trying to do that? As if it, that, is, that is showing a lack of ambition. I said, well, actually, from a business point of view, I, I think you've got a complete misunderstanding. So different stakeholders within the game have a different approach, approaches. Again, going back to, to what, you know, what, what the other guests have said, when we have had changes to the rules, when those changes were starting to bite, the rules then got relaxed. So we, we saw that in the Premier League. There was, there was an effective wage cap. We, we limited the amount of additional money clubs could spend on wages. And then very, very quietly, that was dropped from the rules. Was it around about 2019? Um, so it, it, it's a frustration. Um, and I talk to people in the game. I talk to people in politics. And the one thing that I don't get in the question I ask, first of all, what is your ultimate objective? And, and nobody wants to, to grasp that particular nettle. If we, if, we want, uh, if we want to say that football is effectively trapped in amber in terms of where clubs can go financially going forwards, we, we have an elite six. That's better than having an elite one or two that we see in Spain. We've got an elite one in Germany. We've got an elite one in France. It's more competitive than the other European uh, nations. So therefore, we should be thankful for it. I can understand that. But as a fan, and that's ultimately what I am, it's, it's pretty depressing when, when at the start of the season, for I know for 10 clubs, it's let's try and avoid relegation. Absolutely. Um, right, I'm going to turn to some quick-fire questions now that have been sent into us from Twitter. First, a common question I've had is this. How are clubs like Barcelona and Everton able to have incurred so much debt but seem to avoid the consequences of FFP? Dan, do you want to handle that hot potato? Yeah, Nick. So I, I will definitely take your, your quickfire question and do that relatively quickfire, but I'll also come back on something Kieran yes, said there. Um, so on the quickfire basis, um, actually touches on something Kieran said. So again, debt's not the issue. The rules aren't there trying to control debt. So Barcelona and Everton, both those situations are very, very interesting. Uh, Everton's situation, I understand, is still sort of being looked at um, by the Premier League uh, and seen various sort of media speculation around it and so on. Barcelona's summer, particularly this summer, um, has been you know, watched with a lot of interest because, again, we saw the Lionel Messi departure. We saw the new president come in and talk about what a financial basket case he inherited. We 
see the head of La Liga talking at great length about how clubs and other leagues are conducting themselves financially and having its own strong regulations. And to be fair, the La Liga regulations, to my mind, are probably you know, very close to the pinnacle of a, a sort of top football league's regulation. So how that ultimately uh, transpires over the course of this summer and where Barcelona ultimately gets and which players they are able to register and how, um, that will be fascinating to me. So I don't think we're there yet. It's not a debt issue, though. It's a compliance with rules that are around you know, losses and so on. Um, just coming back and, and, and you know, what's the ultimate objective of these things. So we've just been through uh, the independent fan-led review. And again, in that, you know, this, this issue was wrestled with again. And, you know, from a, you know, it was fan-led, the clue was in the name. And the key thing for fans is to still have their club there to support. And they would like their club to win as many football matches as possible. But they would much rather that they didn't do a Portsmouth, say, or, you know, worse still, um, a Berry. Um, so, you know, the, the priority is put on financial sustainability. That does trigger, as we've all noted, you know, an issue with, well, what does that mean in terms of competitive balance? What does it mean in terms of owner investment? So, yeah, again, those, those particular nestles are very hard to grasp. One of the weirdest things about working in football over the years is, is the sort of attitude of big participants in it towards the regulator. It is the only industry I can think of whereby the participants, the investors, the shareholders, the owners get extremely agitated about a regulator who is desperately trying to help them stop losing money. You know, no other industry do you see that. You, know, you don't get the water and gas companies up in arms with off-water, off-gem saying, what are you doing? You're helping us generate returns for our shareholders. Get out of our way so we can lose some more money. It's a very bizarre sector in that respect. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting point. Um, Another question that came in from uh, Newcastle fans in particular, uh, for you, Kieran, I think, um, some of them have asked, why is it that the rules seem to be written by the, some of the top clubs to stop um, Newcastle, who's now got some wealthy investors, investing in success in the same way that Man City and Chelsea did that you described earlier? Uh, how can that be fair, they say? It's not fair, because if it had happened in 2004, if it had happened in 2008, then Newcastle would have been able to spend money. I, I got my calculator out this morning. I was on the train uh, working out the numbers. Now, when Chelsea were acquired by Abramovich, they spent £175.1 million in the first season after acquisition. You convert that into today's money, taking into what I would refer to as football inflation, i.e. increase in revenues since that period. That would allow Newcastle United to spend £567 million in this, this annual transfer market, which is a lot of money. It would also allow them to, to increase their wage level to £375 million, which I can see Rebecca fainting in, in the corner <laughs> of the room opposite at the prospect having to deal with, with those type of demands because it does create an arms race. And, and I think this is one of the... This is one of the rational reasons behind FFP is that it is there to try to stop everybody trying to constantly take over from each other. So, is it fair to Newcastle? It's not fair to Newcastle. It's not fair to Newcastle because we are in 2022 and we have financial fair play. It, was it therefore fair to Chelsea in 2004 and Manchester City a few years later? It was fair to them because them's were the rules. Yeah, them's the breaks, as somebody <laughs> recently said. I can't remember what he's doing these days. Um, and uh, yeah. What we have seen since those rules have been changed, have the poachers turned into gamekeepers? Yes, they have, because now it's in it's the interests of Chelsea and Manchester City to not have an, a, an additional competitive club in the Premier League. 
Rebecca, uh, another question I was asked is, is whether FFP just leads to things like, um, this is what they said, more expensive tickets, more expensive shirts, more expensive food and drink in the grounds, and doing deals with dodgy sponsors, weaker squads, and less competitive leagues. <laughs> what, what do you think of that? I think look, it's, it's, it's difficult to attribute any or all of those things to FFP, but I think you know, ultimately there are downsides to any system of regulation. And as you know, Kieran's just talked about one of them, potentially if you're, if you're a club that's you know, acquired new owners and, and got new money. But look, all of us want to be competitive. All of us want to run our business as well. None of us set out to lose money, but trying to be competitive and be profitable is, is not easy. And it's a challenge for all of us, but we're all trying to achieve that. Okay, well, a, a question from me. Um, having been rather scarred from the whole Derby County saga. Um, a, a little technical, so forgive me, but I know you'll make it understandable if I can't, Kieran. But what's wrong with football clubs reflecting in their accounts the reality of the financial model in football when it comes to player trading? Um, and what I'm talking about here is what's described as the treatment of player registration amortisation in club accounts. So put simply, if I can, it's a part of the where, where a part of the club's financial model might be to develop young players and then sell them at a profit. Why can't their accounts reflect that reality? Why are they forced to treat players as reducing assets? That's of course the thing that Derby got punished for. Kieran, can you can you explain that to people? Unfortunately, uh, and I am a critic of the accounting system. Accounts are there to balance; they are not there to reflect reality. I think this is much a much broader issue um, in the sense that providing a set of rules for financial fair play based on financial statements is fundamentally flawed because finan financial statements are not there to promote solvency and continuity and sustainability. So, so the problem is not necessarily the um, interpretation of the rules, although we may disagree with that, but the problem you're saying is applying strict accountancy rules to the football model just doesn't work. Yes, and, and, and I think there's an alternative to this. We could, we could view football player registrations as inventories, and in which case I, I think it would be a much easier way to um, have greater continuity. I mean, that, that, would, that would be one way of addressing the, the issue of amortisation. I fully agree that the value of a player's contract decreases by 85% in the final year of that contract. In the case of Derby County, that would have eventually, I think in 2019, it would have come back to hit the club anyway, because the model that they were using, which was to reduce the amortisation charge in the early years and to effectively back backdate it um, into the final year of the contract, um, there's always a point where it catches up with you. Uh, and I think Derby were about to hit that, and I think that probably contributed towards the decisions that were made at executive level in terms of putting the club into administration. I think I think one of the frustrations that many clubs have is is if those are the rules, then then let's put them in, let's put them into place. So I think in with UEFA, they have a sort of clear policy of how amortisation must work, but the EFL rules didn't contain that that provision. Mm. And it, again, I think the UEFA rules are far more prescriptive and detailed, and it, it leaves a lot less chance for interpretation or disagreement. And I think. I think the EFL did try and address this in, in February where they updated the rules, or at least they voted to update the rules. If, even even the last time I checked back in, in June, when you go onto the website, you still can't see the changes in the rules that have been brought into place. Um, so yeah, just, to, just to explain that to our listeners, so um, 
the straight line amortization, as Kieran described. It was in the UEFA rules, but it was not in the Football League rules. They could have put it in there, but they didn't. But they have more recently, since the Derby case, changed their rules and put it in there. Although Tom says they're, they're not currently available. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I must confess, I say that they're already in the financial accounting reports. But that's a separate issue. Yes. Um, okay, so a, another question from me is, is how can you have FFP rules on the one hand that prevent clubs in the championship investing over a certain sum of money to compete for promotion and then have parachute payments on the other, uh, which means that those clubs relegated from the Premier League can be seen to have a huge financial advantage. Uh, not only do they not need the same amount of investment for players, but as I understand it, the parachute monies they receive are not treated as debt in the same way as investor investment would. And so they're allowed to have they're allowed to do what they like with that money and have an artificial um, advantage to other clubs, leading to a situation where I think when you look at the last few years, uh, over 90% of clubs uh, promoted from the uh, championship have been in receipt of parachute monies. Um, so the topic of parachute payments is a extremely uh, vexed issue. Um, I think you know the clue is in the name. They're, they're parachute payments. They're designed to provide a soft landing. Um, those of us who remember back to the frequency with which clubs that were relegated um, from the Premier League fell into administration uh, around about the, the turn of the millennium and so on. Um, there's a very clear rationale for why parachute payments are there. Um, the stats, Nick, I don't think are quite as uh, extreme as you, as you cited in terms of the uh, prevalence of parachute payments in clubs that get promoted. Um, it, I, I think it's uh, much more sort of 50-50 than, than, than 90%. Um, but they aren't designed to be trampoline payments. They're a parachute. They're not designed to spring you straight back up into uh, into the Premier League. And and indeed, yeah, there's a fairly strong argument that they don't necessarily spring you straight back into the Premier League. Um, ask the fans of of Stoke or Swansea or Hull or Sunderland or yeah, etc. 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 So um, they're not a guarantee, but they are undoubtedly, as I say, a vexed issue uh, and a source of competitive imbalance potentially in the Championship. What I would say is that there is quite a long list of clubs who for whom they come down relegated, they get their parachute payments, but actually all those parachute payments are doing is covering the cost of ill-advised player contracts they signed up to in the Premier League, uh, where they didn't have things like mandatory wage reductions on relegation or break clauses with players and so on in the event of relegation. And so actually they have a squad of players who have proven they're not up to it, consider themselves too good for the championship, aren't really at the races, and suddenly come down to what is a fiercely... Uh, competitive and intimidating league for which they are ill-equipped and ill-motivated and find that they, they really, really struggle. So I, I am a big advocate for um, divisional dependent contracts. I, I do not understand why they don't exist. I do not understand why they're not required and enforced. And, you know, that's the deal. If you're a, if you're a player and you're in a squad and you perform and you play in the Premier League, great, you earn this. And if you don't and you play in the Championship, I'm sorry, but you earn that. Well, perhaps I could bring Rebecca in on that because that was actually one of the issues I remember we had to deal with in the QPR case, wasn't it? And isn't it the case that it's actually very difficult for a club that's um, essentially trying to avoid relegation, it's in the, the bottom three or four places in the Premier League, uh, to persuade a player to sign a contract um, whereby his salary will reduce by 50% if the club gets relegated? 
what, what was the experience that QPR had in, in terms of those sort of divisional um, pay structures that Dan advocates? Yeah, and, and look, I, I agree with Dan. In, a, in an, an ideal closed environment, you would have very clear differentiations between Premier League salaries and Championship salaries. I, th I think one of the challenges that we've all got is we don't operate in a closed environment. And, you know, if you're QPR, you're trying to be competitive in the Premier League. And you're not just competing with other Premier League clubs to sign players, you're competing with clubs in France and Italy and Spain, Germany. Um, and if they don't have the same restrictions on, on salaries, then that's something you have to, to counter. And so I think, look, I think it's quite common practice in the Premier League now to have salary reductions on relegation. I think most clubs have that as a standard. Um, sometimes it's easier to put that in a player contract than others, um, but it does impact your ability to sign players if you're not able to offer them competitive terms versus other European clubs when that's effectively the market that you're taking players from. And in terms just sort of the future of parachute payments, I see you put your hand up, maybe you can deal with this, Kieran. Um, there have been various discussions about reform. How, how do you think parachute payments are going to pan out in the future? Parachute payments are a clumsy solution to the bigger problem of the cliff edges between divisions. Both, you know, first of all, we've got the Premier League to the Championship. Then we've got the Championship to League One. We've also got League Two to the National League. And in each of those, we have parachute payments. Now, the EFL are very, very quiet about the fact that they have parachute payments, given that they describe them as evil. Well, in which case, why do they have a product in their, in their own uh, set of rules, which is evil? Um, Going back to the issue, and I agree entirely with Dan and Rebecca, if, if you actually take a look at the numbers, and you know, I, I wake up on a spreadsheet and I go to bed with a spreadsheet, on average, a club in the championship, in its first season following relegation, its wage bill in total goes down by 40%. So you know, the, 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 these, these clauses do exist. In order, under the present regime, to have uh, a club being able to break even or come down to an acceptable level of loss in the championship following relegation, those wage cuts realistically would have to be in the region of 75 to 80%. I think if I was a chief executive of a club in the bottom six in January and the manager says we've identified this player and he's coming from Portugal or the Netherlands and we say here's a three and a half year contract, you're on 50 grand for the first six months, we're currently 18th. If we stay 18th, it goes down to £8,000 a week uh, from, from the 1st of July. That player doesn't come to the club. And I think that's the challenge within football, is that if you solve one problem, you create another. And there, there, there is there constant moving parts. And, and I absolutely take Rebecca's point about you know being at the sharp end of this and how difficult these things are to negotiate. I do think, though, if you've got a, if you've got a rate, again, it goes back to the regulator helping you. If the regulator has stipulated and said, look, this, this is what these contracts must contain. These are the ways we're going to examine and scrutinise your finances. And everybody in the English game, at least, is having to play by that set of rules. That definitely helps you in negotiation because you're saying, look, it's the law. Can't break yes. the law for you. Although you're, you're less, if you're a player, you're less worried if Manchester City has a 50% reduction on relegation. Yeah, albeit you may than, be quite, you may be quite, uh, yeah. you may be quite upset about their, what happens to you if you don't get in the Champions League clause, for example. Um, but I do think the English clubs are in a unique position in this respect, in that the financial advantage that the Premier League teams enjoy over their European counterparts means that they can, you know, offer the best money to players even with these sort of restrictions. And likewise, in the championship, um, the upside that you can offer in terms of if you do get 
promoted into the Premier League um, with these sort of divisional dependent contracts again helps out. Just last point on Kieran's example. I get it about wanting to sign the star striker who's going to get you those five goals between now and the end of the season and keep you up and all that kind of stuff. Um, on that three and a half year deal, yeah, yes, they're probably not going to sign. Unfortunately, if they do sign and you end up still finishing on 18th and you go down and you've got three years left on their contract to pay them 50 grand a week and, you know, going away midweek in the championship isn't what that person signed up for and they're not necessarily a great influence around the club. That's quite a big problem you've created for yourself. Again, I go back to the point I made earlier about sometimes the game needs saving for itself. Rebecca? I just wanted to pick up on something Kieran said there about lots of moving parts, and that's the biggest challenge with all of this, is you, you solve one problem or you tweak one thing and you create another problem or, or cause a, a, a sort of a disparity somewhere else. And, you know, as Dan just said, it's, you know, having been there, it's far easier to negotiate an uplift if you get promoted than it is to negotiate a, a decrease if you get relegated. And, and equally, as you said, Nick, it's, it's far easier to negotiate a salary reduction at the top of the league than it is at the bottom. And, and you try and address one problem, you inevitably impact on other things and create other you know, problems potentially. And, and that's one of the things that I mentioned earlier about the importance of clubs being involved in, in any discussions around regulations, because we're at the sharp end. And so although we have self-interest, we understand the, the intricacies of, of what happens. You know how it works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to correct my earlier statistic, I think what I meant to say, Dan, was that about 90% clubs were either in receipt of parachute payments or would have breached the PNS rules in the championship at the time had they not been promoted. That, and that's, that's the problem. problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, right. Well, I, I'm going to turn now to, uh, I think, what's often the most popular part of these podcasts, which is where I ask our guests to tell us about their own personal journeys. How did they end up in these fascinating jobs they now have uh, in football finance uh, or law? So, Tom, let's start with you. You're a, a sports lawyer. Why and how? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, originally I actually wanted to be a human rights barrister. So in many ways, I've, I kind of missed the mark. Um, I, I got a scholarship from Lincoln's Inn to become a barrister after a horrible interview from a QC and a judge <laughs> and another barrister. And they asked me very strange questions like, Mr. Murray, let's say you're Attorney General of the United Kingdom and Russia invades Eastern Europe. What would your legal advice be? But for somehow I, I managed to get this... Um, this scholarship and I was, I was dead set on becoming a barrister and then uh, I was doing a mini pupillage which is essentially work experience for, for barristers and someone said oh I should have a look at this, this law firm called Mishkondorea, they do some quite cool stuff um, and I thought okay maybe I'll, maybe I'll apply there. Uh, I did a, a vacation scheme there for, for two weeks and ended up pretty much just doing sports work uh, so we were acting for Cardiff City at the time um, when all of the sort of issues with Malky Mackay and, um, and various football agents um, and I spent, I, I then turned down my scholarship and took the job at Mishcon for two years um, on a training contract and pretty much just did sports work for as, as much as I could. So buying and selling football clubs or trying to buy and sell football clubs that never actually went through. Um, we acted on the first PNS rules case uh, for Birmingham City. I flew to Switzerland and defended the vice president of the IAAF um, and then worked on, on quite a few sort of Premier League sponsorship agreements. Um, and I, I kind of realised at that point you can you can do something which you're good at, which is law, and something you can that you're interested in, which is sport, um, and, and call that a job. So um, I, I decided to do that. I've always been a bit of a, a geek when it comes to sort of complex issues, and, and FFP sort of took my interest. I must admit, when I first started, I really didn't understand it. I found it very confusing. So I tried to create a vlog, which is like a video blog, 
of, of different issues, analysing you know, what happened in Manchester City or what the new rules that came into place and develop my understanding that way. Um, we were advising lots of championship clubs on their compliance. You know, should we sell our stadium? What happens if we do? Um, what, should, you know, what are we going to do um, if these new rules are introduced? Um, we did a lot of advice around, around COVID-19 costs and the implications and how they're interpreted. Um, and I, got, I became a real sort of nerd around the subject. Um, many, of the, many of the cases me and Nick have, have worked on together. And then um, last year or the year before, um, was asked, I was asked to contribute in Nick's, in Nick's book, Football and the Law, which is available from all good bookstores from, from August this year. Um, and, and yeah, and, and since then I, I, I work predominantly in sports law, so 50% of my time as, as a sports lawyer. And then I founded my own business, which is advising esports players, so professional gamers on their contracts, finding the sponsorship um, and sort of resolving issues that come up in their, in their lives. And um, so I do, do that for half my time and half my time as a sports lawyer. And I assume that you don't have any regrets about not being a human rights barrister anymore. Well, I don't know. In some, <laughs> in some ways, in some ways I do. I think, I think the, the, the great thing about being a barrister is that you get to sort of be the centre of attention and stand up and argue a case. Um, and and watch um, watch someone's face as you try and persuade them that you're that you're right. And I think I'll always have a, a love for that. Um, even though I've never had a chance to experience it myself. But I think I think overall as a as a career choice, it's a very intensive and, and challenging career. I think all the barristers I meet have the highest levels of, of job satisfaction of pretty much anyone I meet, but perhaps lower levels of overall life satisfaction because it's because it's such a demanding role. Well, I, I used to want to be a human rights barrister, which is why I applied to Blackstone, in fact. Um, but probably like you, I have no regrets that I've ended up doing sports law because although human rights may be more worthy, sports law's a lot more fun. Um, so, Dan, you're an accountant turned football expert. H how did that work? Uh, well, funnily enough, I was just listening to Tom's answer there and sort of ticking off various things, thinking that sounds incredibly familiar, albeit I'm, I'm a couple of years older than Tom, I think. <laughs> um, so, my great loves and passions in my life as a as a student and have carried on with me through my life were um were sports and music and the unfortunate thing was i had no discernible talent for either um, but i had a great love of them and i sort of realized that i needed to get a job um, and i'd done an economics degree and someone said you know why don't you ever look at applying for accountancy i thought that sounds quite dull but it does seem to be um reasonably well paid so i'll go do that for three years clear my student debt get a qualification and that'll be me i'll be gone um, and when I joined um, Touchross as it then was, what later became Deloitte. And then one of the reasons I joined was they had a department that had lots of music clients. So I thought, that's great, I'll get myself in there, I'll introduce myself on the first day and say, I'd fancy working on these music clients, and where do I sit and start doing that? <laughs> and then I realised pretty quickly actually that the music clients were the most sought after clients in the firm and that I wasn't going to get anywhere near them. And then I had the great uh, fortune to run into a guy called um, Jerry Boone who had decided that doing a financial league table of football would be a good way of getting the, the, the firm's name known. Um, that uh, gloriously named signif uh, Review of the Significant Accounting Policies of Football Clubs ultimately became the Annual Review of Football Finance. I, I moonlighted my evenings and weekends working on that. I then found my way into doing a strategic review of the Football League, um, including recommending that they get themselves a chief executive, who turned out to be a guy called Richard Scudamore, who I don't know what he went on to do, but he was, he was decent um, when we brought him in as chief exec at the Football League. And there was various clubs coming to the stock exchange and floating on the market. And it was just a, a very exciting time to be involved. And you know, that combination of having found something I was really, really interested in, but I was also 
good at, um, unlike sort of uh, the, the prospects of just being an auditor or the prospects of my chance of becoming a musician or a footballer, um, was great. And then I had a sort of bit of an aberration and left, was lured by the big money of, of tech to um, go and work in the, in the dot-com boom um, for a tech company. All very exciting, all very go-go, but not deeply fulfilling. Um, and then got offered the chance to come back to Deloitte to uh, be the number two in the sports business group and then ultimately became the partner um, running that group. Had a fantastic career doing that, had 18 years running that team, um, taking it from being an English football accounting practice to being a global sports consulting business. Um, handed on the reins on that relatively recently. Uh, had worked with um, Tracy Crouch and, and the team on the independent fan-led review, which I loved. and. I'm hopeful that you know in the years to come I'll get to work on other very interesting and fulfilling um, work around sports. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's been the journey. Okay, I can't imagine you've got any regrets in that case. I mean, it's it's been a fact that the annual review that you did every year has become almost the bible, hasn't it? Across football, every year, I think I've heard you interviewed on Radio Four explaining it. Um, incredible career. Yeah, it's been a fantastic career, and I think you know, in a way for for Deloitte and for the for the team um, there who carry on doing fantastic work, the the annual view was always both our blessing and our curse. It was fantastic in the profile it had, the credibility it had, the way it sort of got us known in the market. The the unfortunate thing was that sometimes you you'd still be talking to people who you'd known for a long time. They'd be saying, "So is that all you do?" And you'd be like, "No, no, that's about five percent of what we do." You know, the ninety five percent is the client facing stuff. Um, yeah, the, the transactions, the strategic advice and so on. But yeah, I mean, a phenomenally varied and interesting career. Um, not occasionally without its frustrations and its work-life balance challenges, but a, a fantastically yeah, fulfilling career. And Rebecca, I mean, you're now one of the most important directors in world football. That might be That's... slightly overstated. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you're you're a, one of the biggest top top clubs in the world, and you're effectively in charge of governance and contracts and so on. How did you get there? What was your path? Um, so I guess the short answer is by accident. Um, but in reality, I've, I've always loved football and I've always loved sport. And I did a sports science degree at Loughborough um, because that's what I wanted to do without really knowing what I wanted to do beyond that. Um, it was joint honours degree, um, sports science, uh, PE and maths. And I came out of, of Loughborough genuinely not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I sort of did various um, sort of temping jobs, went travelling, um, came back from travelling. Um, and realised that I was kind of heading towards my mid-twenties and should probably get a, a proper job. So I did the NHS uh, Financial Management Graduate Scheme, um, which um, never intended to be an accountant, but I, the scheme had got very good reviews. Um, I applied for it because I thought, well, I've got a maths degree, why not? Um, so I got onto the scheme, which was great, and it was a great way to become an accountant. Um, the, the breadth of experience and diversity that you get through that scheme was was amazing. So I worked for a number of different NHS um, organisations in a number of different roles, departments all across finance. Came out of, out of that as a chartered accountant with, with lots of experience, which was great. Um, stayed in the NHS for a few years post-qualification um, and then sort of decided I should probably think about what I really wanted to do with the rest of my, my life. So I went to the, the Lawn Tennis Association. I went in there as financial controller. Um, stayed there a few years um, acting FD for a little while and then got approached about a job at QPR. Um, and I thought at the time if I move into football then that will open up doors and I didn't necessarily intend to stay in football but I thought well that's got to be the place to go because once you've worked in football that probably is transferable to, to any other sport. 
So went into QPR as, as FD. Um, you'll know at the time, Nick, um, it was uh, lots going on at QPR. <laughs> I had a, a very interesting five and a half years at QPR. We've already touched on relegation promotion. We had change of ownerships. Um, I did a lot of uh, managerial and player contracts whilst I was there. And I sort of just took on more and more responsibility um, whilst I was there. I was acting chief exec for a while. Um, when we got promoted, we then had the new ownership group. Tony Fernandez and, and his partners came in and everything was great, but very challenging and lots of up and downs. And I was doing more and more stuff non-finance, so sort of doing more sort of a broad role um, and then got approached as to whether I'd like to, to move to Tottenham in a non-finance role. And so the role I was approached for at Tottenham was director of football operations. And I thought, well, OK, I'm, I'm moving away from accountancy. That's the kind of the profession that I've fallen into. But what a great opportunity mm. to, to move into a, a football role at a, a massive club. Um, so I convinced myself that I couldn't turn it down. Um, so I went to Tottenham. I've been there for seven and a half years now. Um, we've been through a lot there and um, very different from QPR, obviously a bigger club, uh, you know, far different in terms of what it's trying to achieve and what it's able to do. We've built an amazing new stadium. Um, we've had a number of years in Champions League and we're back in it for this coming season, which is brilliant. Um, we've had some great players, great managers, and we've currently got a great manager and a great squad and, and all is, is looking really positive. So I feel very privileged to, to do the job that I do and to have had the opportunities that I've had. And I expect that, um, that period in QPR with some of the, let's say, more challenging owners occasionally that may have been there at times, um, a kind of baptism of fire after that experience you can take on any role yeah so I, I often joke I was at QPR for five and a half years but I had 25 years experience <laughs> <laughs> Kieran did you ever imagine becoming a celebrity finance nerd how did it happen um well a, a series of sliding doors moments I suspect we, we've all had um uh, like Dan my my world to a certain extent revolves around football and music so I went to Manchester in 1980 to do, to do a degree in economics. Uh, I graduated without a job. I was then, uh, I then sort of, I ended up as the manager of an adult retail establishment. <laughs> um, but I was too embarrassed to tell my mum. So I saw a job advertised for a firm of accountants and applied. Uh, to, and that effectively meant going back to Manchester. And, and the interview consisted of the following conversation. Uh, Kieran, I, I see on your CV that, uh, that you're a, a cricketer for Sussex under-19s. Can you tell me what you do? I said, I'm, I'm an opening bowler, sir, uh, left arm over, uh, bring it back in, you'll get off the seam. He says, well, I've always wanted to win the Grant Thornton National Cricket Competition. <laughs> you're in. And that was it. So, so uh, by, by pure accident, I ended up going into accounting. Or sporting skill. Sport, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, and that was great. It was back in Manchester, Manchester music scene. Leo, one of the great loves of my life. Um, I've, I've always wanted to teach. I've, I, I'm a great believer in education, as, as coming from a you know, Irish migrant family where you know, we we were bricklayers and farmers. So you know, to get an education was was something that I, I always wanted, and the opportunity to get go into education came. I've, I've been teaching since the 80s. Um, you know, I, I, I love it to bits. But teaching in Manchester and Liverpool, which is the two cities in which I've always been based, um, they are football cities. So how can I engage for three hours on a Monday morning with a bunch of undergraduates who, you know, a lot of the time, they don't want to listen to what I've got to say. You turn the subject to football and then you, then you, then you turn and switch. So if I can go into a class and say, uh, you know, Manchester or Liverpool, say, oh, have you seen, seen United's latest accounts? 
They owe £258 million in outstanding transfer instalments. That is a way of teaching them through stealth. You know, I, I use it as a, as a Trojan horse. Um, and then um, teaching's great, the, the money's rubbish. So, so I moonlight. And uh, I, I moonlight for investment banks, teaching them creative accounting and, and other things. And I was down, this was in 2005, uh, I was down teaching for an investment bank um, on the day that the Glazers acquired Manchester United. And this bank happened to be part of the advisors and two o'clock the New York markets were about to open uh, yeah, yeah, compared to uh, UK time. And the, the shutters were put across the windows, four huge bouncers appeared on the front door. And I'm going, what's going on here gang? And they told me the story and they said, it's an LBO. We fear that a bunch of Cockney Reds are going to go and put the windows out when they, when they hear the nature of the deal. And uh, so I, I picked up a little bit of that. And as I was going as I was on the train back to Manchester, the BBC phoned up the university to say, can somebody explain what's going on? And the university says, we've got this fraud that already talks about football. We're supposed to be teaching them accounting. <laughs> he can probably combine the two. I went on to the BBC breakfast the following morning and what I found in the world of, of media, if you don't mess up, then your name goes onto a Rolodex and, and you get invited to go into the, the, the next time. That took off. Um, I mean, you're on TV nearly every day now, aren't you? Every time I turn it on, I see you talking about football somewhere. Yeah, I, I did 634 interviews for TV, radio and newspapers last year, which, which is, is, is fun in a way. Um, the, the podcast, I think we've, we're now 6 million downloads for a bloke talking about amortisation of financial fair play. Yeah. In, in an ideal world, I want it to all collapse because then football will be looking after itself because bad news sells. So you know, for me, Super League, Project Big Picture, what happened to Derby, Berry, we started the show on, on the back of what was happening at Berry. Um, it, will, it will be great if, if the audience dies because there's nothing to talk about. But... But it, it's incredible, I, I think, that a, a programme about football finance, um, co-hosted by an accountant, is, is now one of the most popular. Um, and it's, you bring out two a week podcasts on football in the world. It's an incredible achievement. Um, yeah, but I think as Dan sort of hinted, the work-life balance has, has taken a bit of a hammering um, as a result of that. And uh, as, as my wife keeps saying me, You've had one divorce, you can't afford another one. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, uh, yeah. Do you really need two episodes a week, though? I mean, that's, uh, we, we, we could well, do, we're we, trying to do one a month of these, and I find that hard work. Um, it, it's, it, it, it's great fun. I'm, I'm working with two fantastic professionals in, in Kevin, who, who writes the, the scripts for Have I Got News For You, uh, and, and in Guy, who's uh, BBC Business. Um, and uh, at times, I try to get myself the sack by saying something as outrageous as I can, and, and they just managed to convert that into something which is more acceptable. So it, it's, it's, it's good fun, um, uh, and I'm very, very fortunate. Well, th thank you all very much for that, and it just shows the diverse and different ways people often end up in, um, in what might seem like dream jobs to everybody else. Um, so finally, I'm going to ask each of my guests to tell us what they expect will be the future of financial regulation in football. What, what are the three, two or three big issues to look out for coming up next. 
Um, Tom, can I start with you just to get you to briefly describe these new UEFA rules we've heard about and how they might impact things? Sure. So there's a, there's a, there's a couple of new rules which, which UEFA have introduced. Uh, they describe it as one of the, the biggest ever changes to FFP. Um, first of all, they've stopped calling it FFP and they've started calling it financial sustainability, which I think is a good thing for the reasons we explored earlier. Um, for me, one of the most significant changes is the introduction of, of what's called now the football earnings rule, which used to be called the break-even requirement. Um, so crucially, this increases the amount that clubs are permitted to lose over a three-year monitoring period from 30 million to 70 million. So this is a 133% increase of my maths is right, which I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'll be corrected if not. Um, now this is this is quite a significant change. Um, it's still 54 million pounds less than than the permitted acceptable deviation under the under the Premier League rules, but it's nonetheless uh, quite a significant change. Um, in terms of other key changes, UEFA have introduced two other new rules. Um, the net equity rule and the squad cost rule. So in very sort of basic terms, the net equity rule requires clubs to demonstrate that their net equity, which is essentially the difference between a club's assets and its liabilities, is either positive or that it's improved by at least 10% since the previous year. And the idea behind this is to slowly strengthen clubs' balance sheet to enable them to, to operate with positive equity and, and reduce the build-up of, of, of net debt. Um, that rule comes into place in June of next year. Uh, we then have one of the most controversial changes, which is the, the squad cost rule, um, which limits the amount that clubs can spend on, on wages for players and coaching staff, um, and also for transfers and, importantly, for agents' fees, which they call the squad cost ratio, um, to 70% of a club's income, which is the, the operating revenue and the net profit or loss from, from transfers. Um, this comes in an, in a phased approach from 2023-2024 onwards, um, and I think it starts at 90% and then eventually goes down to, to 70%. I think the, the critics of this rule argue that essentially it's a, it's, a, it's a soft wage cap, and it's been introduced to placate the, the clubs in the European Super League um, by saying, look, if we, if we, if we, this is our way of creating a, a closed shop for others that, uh, that disagree. Thank you. K Kieran? What do you expect the new challenges to be on the football finance front? Um, I think the issues are going to be one of compliance, whatever the rules are going to be. Um, I remember when the initial football uh, financial fair play rules came into being, I read them, sat down one evening, and I came up with 10 ways of getting around them. And I thought, well, if I can do that, there's people far smarter than me that will also be changing the culture of football club ownership into one where people perhaps do believe in, in the long-term interests of the game. And I think the point that Dan raised earlier, that the regulator would be there to help the clubs, but the clubs on an individual basis don't necessarily want help because there is a culture of, we're not looking for a financial return, we're looking for an emotional, we're looking for a soft power return. Trying to, trying to equate those two, two ownership models, I think will be a challenge. Um, I, I think uh, Tom's also hinted at uh, Super League by stealth. Uh, are we moving closer and closer to that? I'd be interested. You know, I, I can't wait until December, not just for Christmas, but we, it does appear that the the ruling in respect of the the case that's been presented yes, uh, in, in by Europe. Barcelona yes. uh, is uh, could, uh, could could keep me on radio for a while. <laughs> um, Rebecca, uh, from your position at Spurs, what what are the big challenges, um, both for Spurs, but 
in, in your view, across football in terms of financial regulation in the future? Yeah, so uh, Tom and Kieran have, have just picked up on, on two really key things there. So obviously with the, with the UEFA introducing their rules and, and I think you know, there is uh, you know, a big difference between 90% to 80% to 70%. So it'd be interesting to see what impact that has um, you know, on, on not just the European clubs, but the knock-on to, to sort of clubs that don't play in Europe as well. And then the fan-led review and, and you know, the potential sort of independent regulator. And as I said earlier, I think it's, it's really important that we try and get that right. Um, and there are so many pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that you, you move one, you, you have to sort of look at the others. And, and I think to try and solve one problem it in itself is maybe quite easy, but to not then cause a lot of other problems is very difficult. And so I think it is, it's a challenging time for, for the industry and we have to somehow get it right. Otherwise, we may end up causing more problems than we, than we have already. We're recording this in August, but it's going to be broadcast in October. Uh, by October, Dan, do you think we'll have any more progress towards an independent regulator? Is it going to go on the back burner? Is it, is it going to be some kind of compromise? What, what do you think is going to happen? Um, no, I would very much hope we're going to have more progress. Um, it was in the Queen's speech. Um, when, when Prince Charles delivered the Queen's speech, it was the, the la literally the last thing mentioned, but it was in the Queen's speech. Clearly, a little bit has happened at Westminster um, since the Queen's speech, but I, look, I do think it's it's the right thing to do. I do, I, I do hope it happens, and I think you, we're around sort of the issue of um, regulations. We sort of go through a little bit of a sort of a stages of denial type process of we don't need these moves into these are impossibly difficult to do moves into oh well they won't be applied they won't have teeth and you know other sports have shown that you can do this and you, you can make it work I mean the um, Premiership Rugby and the regulations they had in place in the action they ultimately took against Saracens shows that you know if you are determined you, you can do it well and I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy with the complexity argument I, I do have lots of sympathy with the fact that there's interlocking pieces and you have to work hard on it but um, if we can fly helicopters on Mars, we can come up with a way of making financial uh, sustainability for football <laughs> clubs work. You, you, were, you were part of the review panel with Tracy Crouch, and as I understand it, this, this may be um, oversimplification, but the two key areas I think the independent regulator will be looking at, according to your recommendations, are financial regulation and the owners and directors test. Is that, is that broadly right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a... Uh, I would say this, wouldn't I? But it's a very good and comprehensive document that covers a lot of recommendations. But yeah, absolutely at the core is financial regulation to ensure sustainability of clubs and owners and directors test again to... to and on those goal. points, do, do you accept Rebecca's point that the clubs need to be able to buy into that? They need to have a say of those rules because they're the, they're the people it's going to affect. They're the people it's who understand how it works at the coalface. Absolutely. I think there's no desire or... or value at all in, in you know, the regulators just going off to a dark room and doing that on their own. Um, clearly there's been a lot of work, a lot of thinking done around this. Um, the reason why the review yeah, got, the review was criticised at times because it was supposed to be fan-led and yet they were talking to clubs and they were talking to people like Kieran and there was people like myself sitting on the panel and people like, well, what, you know, I thought this was supposed to be fan-led and, and the idea was that we are all fans of football but we have something to bring to the table and to contribute and to learn from what has gone before and I, I genuinely believe that there is a very workable solution there to be found. Um, just as one other thing to mention as well, um, European Super League, I really, really, really hope that it is dead, but it needs to be relentlessly focused on to ensure that it is dead. 
Um, we do already have a European Super League, of course we have it, it's called the Euro for Champions League and it exists in parallel with domestic competition. Um, and it's interesting that actually Project Big Picture and the European Super League both included measures around financial cost control and regulation to make for more sustainable uh, slash profitable football businesses. So those details obviously were somewhat buried by the wider sort of swell around those two initiatives. But uh, yeah, I, I think regulation will happen. I think it can be very successful if it's done right. Um, and I really, really, really hope that the European Super League never happens. Well, on that note, thank you very much to all of uh, our guests today. It's, I think it's clear from what you've all just said that financial regulation is not going to go away as an issue and we're not going to see the end of Kieran on television um, because these issues are, are going to continue to, to come up. Thank you very much, all, all of you, for uh, such an excellent summary of uh, what the issues are and, um, and how they actually affect clubs and football and fans and so on. You have been listening to episode five of the Sports Law Podcast. You can download previous episodes and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or blackstonechambers.com. Please do give us a five-star rating for the podcast if you like it. In the next episode of the Sports Law Podcast, Formula One and the Law, I'll be joined by the in-house general counsel from three different Formula One teams, McLaren, Williams and Aston Martin F1. We'll be talking about some of the hot legal issues in Formula One. So do make sure you look out for the next episode six of the Sports Law Podcast coming soon. 